canonization process and tyrannical mandates falling apart. By Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara. In this 24th episode of Church and State, they discuss how law is supposed to be an ordinance of reason, but now we see it has become a capricious exercise of raw power. How the canonization process has been corrupted, and this creates much doubt among the faithful. And that when Christ the King is rejected in church or state, he is always replaced by a tyrant. Welcome to another edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall. Welcome, Chris. Good to see you again. Oh, hi, Brian. What a surprise. <laughs> well, as you may know, if you've watched this show, uh, Chris and I get together every couple of weeks and talk about something going on in the church and the state. Unfortunately, we're seeing some of the most unified church and state relations in history, where the, the church and state just seem to be pursuing the same ends. And they're not the ends of Christ the King, unfortunately. <laughs> but well, you uh, mention that because Ken Craycraft wrote a book, and I'm sorry he hasn't continued writing books hmm. called "The American Myth of Religious Freedom," in which he said, "Not only do we not have a separation of church and state, we have the greatest unification of church and state <laughs> in history." Paradoxically <laughs> enough, hey Ken Craycraft, if by some chance you see this, why don't you start writing again? Because that book was superb. It was. That was an excellent book. Well, our first, we're going to start with the church, and we're going to talk about a conference that the Dicastery for Saints just held last month on the title of this conference was Sainthood, What Does It Mean Today? Which is kind of an interesting question because you would think sainthood means the same thing all the time to be, be you know, heroic virtue. But what we're talking about is the church throughout history has declared certain individuals to be saints, which is more than simply just saying they're in heaven. A lot of people reduce it to, oh, they're just deciding this person's in heaven. It's actually a much more public act. It's where they're saying, yes, we believe this person is in the beatific vision, but more importantly, is such a model, such an extraordinary model of sainthood that they should be held up for the whole church. So at this conference, the head of the dicastery, which used to be called the Congregation for the Cause of the Saints, but Francis reordered everything, Bishop Fabio Fabeni, who is the secretary for the dicastery, basically said the conference was about two things, how sainthood had changed over time and how it was different today. And he focused on two things. He says, what is fame today? Fame today is different. It's measured more than likes, but it's different in the past. And then two, what do we mean by heroic virtue or exercising heroic virtue? He went on to say that just as the world has changed since the time of saints from history, so too the way in which people respond to God's call to sanctity changes in our modern times. So what do you well, make you know, of these this, comments? <laughs> this is going to be one of those YouTube first impression videos as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so uh, let's run it and see what they have to say, although I can already anticipate what they're going to say. So Yeah, and uh, actually the video wasn't quite, uh, the sound isn't working. So I just sort of summarized, that's essentially what he says, that sainthood is different today, heroic virtue is different in our time than it was years ago, so we have to approach sainthood differently. Yeah, of course. So heroic virtue would mean, that given the uh, New York Times rule, 
the lack of heroic virtue. Right. <laughs> because whatever the New York Times says, exactly the opposite is the truth. Mm. And, uh, you know, fame would be, uh, he said it's not likes. Well, it probably is likes then in his conception of fame. <laughs> yeah, it's like whatever. Whenever, fact, whenever a modernist says it's not something, he means that it is that thing. <laughs> it's like it's a so fact you know. checker. I, I only believe yeah. things that fact checkers say are not true. It's, it's usually a good rule of thumb. But, but really what he is discussing, I mean, is a real phenomenon in the church. I mean, what has really happened to this process of canonization uh, really in the last 50 years? Can you give us a, you know, I know you contributed to a book on the new canonization process uh, that Father Crean put together a while ago, but what's your thoughts on what has happened to this process? Well, we have, we have a real conundrum here because there's a process ever since the popes took charge of the canonization process and it ceased to be a local yes. phenomenon. And with the local phenomenon, you have some saints, at least, that were dubious. They were just mm. popular in a particular region. But after the popes took charge of the process, then an elaborate uh, investigatory apparatus was set up to determine whether the miracles were authentic, to determine whether there was a real reputation for sanctity, and whether this person should be a model for the faithful. So then the question becomes, what is the point of the process if it isn't to mm. verify the capacity of someone to be elevated to the altars. And if the process is irrelevant, if all that matters is that the Pope says, I canonize you, then why do we have to have a process? So it seems to me the process has become integral to the canonization of a particular person. And if the process is subverted in some way, I'm not saying the person isn't canonized, but a question arises. So the position I took in the essay is not that I can say that a saint isn't a saint, but rather that doubts have been introduced into the canonization process, which is either being bypassed without good cause or has been corrupted by politics. And so if the Pope says at the end of the process, I canonize this person, given the fact that the church has not infallibly defined canonization as an act of the infallible magisterium, you can certainly raise questions as to particular people. So that's the problem we face now. We have the process. The process has been watered down. And so now we have a, a question, why have the process? If the process is necessary, don't you have to examine the integrity of the process? And if it isn't necessary, why do we have a process? Well, maybe if I play devil's advocate, pun intended, you know, some people might say, okay, they've sort of streamlined this process, done it, you know, really quickly. They've cranked out thousands of saints. But is that really a bad thing? What's the big deal here? What if they're saying all these people are saints? Why, why is that a problem, having so many more saints declared? I mean, isn't that good? There's just more people to talk about. Well, when you look at somebody like Oscar Romero, <laughs> a pro-communist agitator being elevated to the altars, his involvement in politics alone would not make him a model for the faithful. Saints do not become political agitators on the side of communist insurgents. So Oscar Romero is a saint that raises a question. And then we have these uh, dubious miracles that have been uh, insinuated into the process. There's a pattern of a miracle being attributed to a problem pregnancy that results in an intact and completely healthy born child. That happens all the time in hospitals. Doctors predict that this is a serious problem pregnancy. The child will be born with a serious defect, and it doesn't happen. That doesn't, that's not, doesn't qualify as a miracle, evidencing the intercession of a saint. And yet, in case after case, we see a resort to these problem pregnancy miracles to get around the requirement of an actual miracle. An actual miracle will be something like what happened with Pope St. Pius X, 
where, for example, an article of his clothing was placed on the abdomen of an unconscious woman with a massive tumor, and the tumor disappeared instantaneously. That's a miracle. Mm. But to say that someone with a problem pregnancy had a normal childbirth, that's not not a miracle. It happens every day in maternity wards. So if you're going to call into question the veracity of miracles, then you're calling into question the veracity of the process. And then you have these questions arising. So it isn't just the fact that they're making many saints. It's possible to make many saints if you have many proofs of sanctity. But do we have proofs of sanctity? Now, if you're going to canonize 800 martyrs, I can understand that because the church has always taught that martyrdom uh, mm-hmm. means that one goes directly into the beatific vision. So 800 people slaughtered for their faith at the same time can be canonized as a group. There's also equipollent canonization and this canonization by popular acclaim. Well, you don't even need to have a process because this person has been known as a miracle worker for centuries. And so there's a universal recognition of the sanctity of this person, but not some newcomer like Oscar Romero, please. <laughs> well, and you mentioned equipollent. That's another aspect of this that, as you described, is where a person is just so well known and, and known to be a miracle worker, known to be heroic virtue, that the Pope says there's no point in going through this whole process. I mean, that was rarely used. I think there were four or five times in hundreds of years. Well, Francis is only, he just did another one uh, uh, last year. He's done it about six times in his papacy. So what's the problem of kind of using this shortcut process more more frequently? Well, it, raise, it raises questions, yes. questions yes. we cannot answer because we are not mm-hmm. the magisterium. So yes. the magisterium would have to make a definitive pronouncement about the role of the process and whether without a process or if the process is manifestly flawed, there is still an infallible act of the magisterium whenever the Pope pronounces the formula. If all we need is the formula, then why, again, why do we need the process? And if we need the process, don't we have to examine the process in a particular case to see whether someone was bought off or whether the miracle is dubious? So the issue is one involving matters of fact or matters of fact within the infallible magisterium. Why does the Pope have to rely on an investigation? And if he does rely upon it, who are the investigators? And how reliable are the results of the investigation? You can't have it both ways, that we need a process to verify sanctity, but then the process is irrelevant as long as the Pope says, he's a saint or she's a saint. Mm. And I have no answer to the conundrum. I just say there are questions that have arisen. Well, I want to turn to another quote that came out of this conference in Rome by Cardinal uh, Marcello Semeraro, who's the the prefect. And it gets to this last point that was mentioned before. Well, everything's different today. Sanctity is not what it used to be. So let me read you his quote. Living in today's world as Christians means responding, which has been the case before. For example, when St. Francis of Assisi sang Brother Sun, Sister Moon, Sister Water, there was not the same problems with pollution that we have today. So there's a different way of addressing the topic today. It is not enough to love the water, love nature, birds today. We have different applications, so sanctity will be different today. What do, what do you make of this nonsense? Well, they always cite the uh, the ode of St. Francis to nature, yes. the canticle of brother sun and sister moon. Mm. But they don't tell you that at the end of the canticle, which they always excise when they quote it, these frauds. Mm. So it, he says, praise be you, my Lord, through sister death, from whom no one <laughs> living can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. <laughs> so are they she finds doing your will 
No second death can harm them. Praise and bless my Lord and give him thanks and serve him with great humility. So this was a, the, the ode to nature is a trope about the wonders of creation, followed by the fearsomeness of the God who is our judge. But they mm -hmm. cut that part out and they turn it into a canticle for the green movement, which is just <laughs> typical of the fraudulence of Vatican pronouncements these days, which are just like, as I say under the New York Times rule, the opposite of the truth. So when they tell you that St. Francis praised nature, they, they actually hide the fact that really he's inversely or rather implicitly condemning nature as a passing thing mm. and reminding us that no one will escape death. I mean, nature is beautiful, but no one will escape death. And what's really important is woe to those who die in a state of mortal sin. Not to mm. be mentioned by today's Vatican, because as we're now being told, sanctity doesn't mean what it used to mean. Well, so I, mortal sin is your carbon footprint, I think. That's what that means today. <laughs> well, it's just sin against, sin against the earth, which is not capable of being the object of a sin. It's an yes. inanimate object. You can't yes. sin against rocks and trees. It's interesting. But the modernists now, as you say, sort of condemn themselves. They come forward and then make these statements and sort of lift the curtain. So there's more that, that we can see. But speaking of lifting the curtain, I think we saw something this week as we we're recording, lifting on the, the curtain on what's been going on in the totalitarian realm, secular realm for the past two years. So a judge in uh, New York, the Supreme Court of New York, which in New York is the, uh, actually a trial court, not the right. highest it's court. New York, it's the, low, it's the yeah. lowest level court. I mean, well, no, it's, 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 the, it's yeah. a trial court. Trial court. Yeah. I mean, when would New York ever be misleading? I know. Right. But in any event, uh, this, this brave judge uh, struck down the mandate to receive the COVID jab for all workers of the city of New York and said that this, in his words, was an arbitrary and capricious rule that was uh, unconstitutional and could not be enforced. So what do you take some hope from this ruling? What's your, what's your reaction? Well, I've been saying from the beginning that the vaccine mandates, in fact, none of the COVID measures mm. can survive even a rational basis examination. They're completely irrational measures, every single one of them. Stickers on the ground telling you to stay six feet away from everybody else, <laughs> walking into everybody's space anyway. There's no possibility of staying six feet away from everybody in a public space. You're all in the same <laughs> airspace. It's absolute nonsense. Wearing a stupid piece of paper over your face all day long because someone tells you to, like you're a little child. That never did anything to stop the spread of COVID. And then came the vaccinations. Now, the vaccinations uh, have proven to be, as we argued from the beginning in various litigations done by Thomas More Society attorneys, the vaccines do not prevent transmission. And so people who are initially vaccinated, double vaccinated, triple vaccinated, quadruple vaccinated, quintuple vaccinated, as we now see <laughs> with President uh, Biden, are coming down with COVID-19. So they abandoned the argument that the vaccines prevent transmission. And their fallback position, which was never the rationale for the mandates, is that, oh, well, if you take the vaccine, your symptoms will be so much less severe. So in other words, it's not a vaccine. It's a treatment. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that the state can mandate a treatment that benefits individuals if there's no public health menace from the spread of an infectious disease. If the vaccines don't prevent transmission, then the rationale for the vaccine mandate evaporates. And mm -hmm. the judge recognized this. But he also recognized in this decision that even if there were a rationale for the vaccine mandate, its imposition is selective and therefore arbitrary and capricious. 
So although the city employees have to have these useless vaccines repeatedly injected into themselves, just because the government says so, which is absurd, Mayor Adams has exempted performing artists and private sector employees from the vaccine mandate. And as the judge rightly notes, if there really is a public health menace from the spread of COVID-19, then everyone should be required to take the vaccine, mm. not just those that are disfavored, as opposed to those on the favorites list who don't have to be vaccinated. So he basically said what was obvious from the beginning, that a vaccine regime with exemptions for favored people is by definition arbitrary and capricious. It's just arbitrary. Oh, you're a performing artist. You don't have to be vaccinated. And also you're a sports star. You don't have to be vaccinated. By the way, Adams, when he reversed the ban on home teams playing unless they're vaccinated, you know what he said? Oh, there are things that are just as important as health, among which is economics. And we need to be able to field home teams that are, comp that are competitive with the business <laughs> For real? This is just absolute nonsense, not only in the city of New York, but at the state level, where that idiot governor, that bird brain Hochul, fired 37,000 invaluable healthcare workers for not being vaccinated. And now we find the CDC admitting in August, last August, that there is no longer in the CDC guidelines for COVID prevention any distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Because, in fact, there never really was a public health distinction that made any sense between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Because, once again, the vaccines don't prevent transmission. In fact, the vaccinated are spreading the virus. Mm -hmm. so the vaccinated are posing a public health threat by being allowed to work with their use mm -hmm. of vaccinations. None of it made any sense. So we've come down to a situation where, as this judge rightly recognized, it's ridiculous. And he said at the end of his opinion, the time has come to do what is right and just. Now, mm. the problem, they immediately appealed to the appellate division, which is the intermediate appellate court in New York State. And I don't have any confidence that the appellate division is going to uphold that decision, but we'll see. Mm. Well, it is interesting. I was surprised that they appealed because uh, several other things that have been struck down, the, the Biden administration has just sort of forgotten to appeal or just let sit there. But you're right. They did seem to immediately go there. Yeah. Remember, um, the, remember the airport mask mandate? Right. That the judge in the 11th Circuit, whose name escapes me, a Trump appointee, she wrote a superb opinion, striking it down as violative of the Administrative Procedures Act. They just said, you know, by fiat, everyone in the airports and on the airplanes has to wear a mask because we said so. And she said, that's ridiculous. You can't change the lives of millions and millions of people on all forms of public transportation without a rulemaking period and comment and so forth. So she struck it down. That was months and months ago. And there hasn't been any outbreak of COVID in the airports or in airplanes. <laughs> the mask mandate and public transportation was revealed to be absolutely nonsensical and useless. And that appeal, as far as I know, is still pending. But there's no way I think that the 11th Circuit is going to reverse the district judge in Florida at this point and tell people to put the mask back on when now the mask is off on the mm. whole rationale. Yes. It's been shown to be utterly ridiculous and worthless. Well, and it's interesting. A comment that the Justice Department made at the time was really telling. They said, we're going to appeal this, I'm paraphrasing, but not because we want to reimpose the mask right now, but because we want to make clear we have the power to do it. And is that really not the root of all this? 
Sure. It's so just arbitrary power. power. Yes. Yeah, Tuck, Tucker Carlson calls them the obedience masks. Put on your <laughs> obedience mask because we tell you. And it's a political signal. The Democrats wear masks and the Republicans don't wear masks. Mm. And it doesn't matter who wears a mask because the masks are useless. They always mm. were useless. Then they, in some places in Europe, they attempted to mandate N95 masks because mm. it was obvious the cloth mask did nothing and probably facilitated transmission because it gave people a false sense of security. So they said, okay, put on an N95 mask. Have you ever worn an N95 mask? <laughs> After about two hours, you're ready to pass out. Yes. And I've seen people wearing these things all day long, making themselves sick yes. by wearing this mask and rebreathing their own carbon dioxide. It's, it's a ridiculous cult of state-imposed obedience for the sake of obedience, as is the mm. vaccine mandate. We want you to be injected because we said so. We don't really mm. care whether it prevents transmission. We want you to be jabbed, and you will be jabbed, unless you're, of course, an athlete. Artist, and you don't have to be jabbed. This is the height of arbitrariness and capriciousness. And this judge, this courageous judge, recognized it. So let's hope more and more judges come to their senses and realize this whole thing the whole COVID regime was a scam from the beginning. Well, and then to tie the two stories together, here's where we see the theme it is, you know, where law. Uh, used to be a ordinance of reason, as St. Thomas said. It's just become an act of raw power, arbitrary and capricious. So whereas the canonization process had a, a rational process, examining proof, had to have high standards. Again, what we see in modern decades is it turned into the Pope said so. Well, because he said so, he uttered these words, it is so. And now the same thing, the state has spoken, uttered these words, Put this over your this piece of paper over your mouth, or maybe put a whole box of them. Maybe that's better. And that's really what's come down to. We've lost the sense that rules and laws are meant to be rational and reasonable, and they've just turned into an act of the will. Yeah, it's the old uh, old era of positivism yeah. and uh, nominalism. The authority says this is good. We call it good, therefore it is good. Yes, we have so defined it. This is the Hobbesian Leviathan. Hobbes speaks of the mortal God who defines good and evil by means of legislation, which is this mortal God to whom we owe absolute obedience from the immortal God, who's really basically out of the picture. Mm. Because the highest authority is the mortal God, Leviathan, than whom there is no greater authority on the face of the earth. And that's what we have in every Western democracy today. Governments that recognize no authority higher than themselves, and not only the authority of the people, but the authority of the administrative state that's not even elected by yes. the people. So really what we have is in the uh, idea that the hidden paradigm of democracy is the concentration camp, as Giorgio Agamben says, and that we have to recognize this hidden concentration camp in its many disguises, witness mm -hmm. the COVID regimes, and the detention, the literal detention camps in Australia for people who dared to venture out of their homes during the so-called pandemic. Well, that's it. When Christ the King is displaced, uh, he will be replaced by a tyrant. That's uh, in church and state, and that's that's what we see. Well, great. Well, thank you for uh, joining me today and talking about these two stories. Uh, if you've enjoyed this presentation, please look at other videos and material from the Fatima Center, which is always relentlessly promoting the key to all of this, which is Our Lady's plan for peace in her message of Fatima. And uh, she is our, our hope 
out of this because she offers us the way to her son. So thank you, Chris, and look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. Until we meet again. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, Ora Pronobis.